0: Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound critical care podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. Sound Critical Care provides comprehensive critical care programs to hospitals across the country. To learn more about our programs and career opportunities, visit www.soundphysicians.com. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. Mechanical ventilation is a life-saving intervention frequently utilized in the intensive care unit. Because it is associated with complications, patients should be liberated from the ventilator as soon as their underlying condition has improved to the point where they no longer require mechanical ventilator support and they are able to safely breathe on their own. Duration of mechanical ventilation is a commonly followed quality metric in many intensive care units. In today's episode of the podcast, we will discuss general concepts related to liberation from mechanical ventilation, weaning from mechanical ventilation, and also examine how these concepts may apply to COVID-19 patients. Our guest is Dr. Eduardo Mireles Cabo de Vila. Dr. Mireles Cabo de Vila is a practicing pulmonary critical care physician and director of the medical intensive care unit at the Cleveland Clinic. His areas of clinical interest include critical care medicine, application of mechanical ventilation, acute and chronic respiratory failure, and extracorporeal life support. He has a special interest in education in critical care, and in specific on the use of stimulation, stimulation to enhance and accelerate learning. Dr. Mireles Cabo de Vila is also the medical director of the Simulation and Advanced Skills Center. He has developed, along with his critical care simulation team, several courses and devices to enhance the training of healthcare providers at the clinic and elsewhere. He's an accomplished clinician, researcher, and educator. We are truly honored and fortunate to have him on the podcast. Eduardo, welcome to Critical Matters.
1: Thank you, Sergio. Nice to be here.
0: We were talking before we started recording on the last time that we saw each other back in February at SECM Annual Congress, and it really feels like it's been decades ago uh so much has happened since and i hope things are good in cleveland so how are things down there
1: uh they are much better it's uh it has been a long year no doubt uh sergio but now we are preparing for a presidential debate tomorrow uh for october we're vaccinating everybody and we are ready to work
0: excellent so let's dive into the topic that we have at hand today. I would like to start with just some concepts and and definitions to introduce the audience to what we're talking about today. And what I wanted to ask you first, the difference between liberation versus weaning from mechanical ventilation, are they different? Can they be used interchangeably? Does it really matter at the end?
1: Well, I think that words do matter, and so I prefer the term liberation because it talks about removal of support, the whole process that occurs. I think weaning, uh, as the word states, uh, focuses on a gradual decrease of support, which is a historical wording, and uh, I think that the association with gradual decrease of support may uh, point towards uh, things that we are not doing necessarily all the time. So uh, in general, I I would say that when you talk about liberation and winning in the literature, you're going to see that they use them interchangeable, but more and more uh, the word being used is now liberation.
0: And I think it also speaks to the fact that the vast majority of patients are liberated quite quickly, but there's a small subset that can be very difficult. And a lot of what we're going to talk about today is going to focus on those patients as well.
1: That's correct. Uh, Majority of the patients will be extubated on on the first attempt of the ventilator without any gradual decrease in in support. And majority of them, uh, as as we'll talk about this, just need a test, the spontaneous breathing trial, and from there they go on on to be liberated without any weaning, as the word means.
0: Excellent. The second thing I wanted to ask you was about the concept of uh, simple liberation versus difficult weaning versus prolonged uh, weaning or, or liberation. Uh, are these terms that are commonly agreed upon or do they mean different things to different clinicians?
1: Well, I think that the one of the challenges that uh, occurred when you read the literature uh, on weaning and liberation is the multiple uh, uh, words and terms that are used. And in 2007, uh, in the sixth international conference, a group of experts uh, got together and came out with this uh, classification, which I think, uh, although at that time it was created by consensus, now after uh, several publications, it does correlate with practice. So the terms matter in this uh, situation and they correlate well with outcomes. So, for example, simple winning is the extubation at the first try. So you do a spontaneous breathing trial, the patient gets extubated after he passes it. Uh, The term difficult weaning refers to those patients that uh, require up to three spontaneous breathing trials or less than seven days of mechanical ventilation. And then the term prolonged weaning uh, is aligned with those that have more than three spontaneous breathing trials that they need to to get extubated or more than seven days on uh mechanical ventilation trying to uh extubate them so I, I think that it helps to to know what is uh what is happening in your unit or in the literature that is being presented with certain interventions that we will talk about so it, it, I, I think that um, overall we should be using those terms uh at this time to in our publications and to refer about our patients.
0: And I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Eduardo, but I believe it was the WIND study that actually looked at these and made some propositions, but it showed that these three categories or these categories are also associated with outcomes and that they can tell you, I mean, in in a higher risk patient populations based on what's going on with their time on mechanical ventilation.
1: Uh, Absolutely. Uh, This has been uh, now repeated in a couple of of trials in which uh, you can see the uh, mortality, the length of of mechanical ventilation and length of ICU stay increasing as you move from one category to the other. And uh, you can also see the incidence uh, uh, of prolonged or or difficult weaning according to uh, the population. And so I think that absolutely this is uh, now has been replicated in in a couple of studies, and it does correlate absolutely with outcomes.
0: Another aspect that I want uh, to to get your your thoughts on related to these three classifications is an observation that I'm sure a lot of our uh, audience who follow these uh, metrics for duration of mechanical ventilation have seen if they look at their data, and that is that Difficult weaning patients and prolonged weaning patients, so more than three attempts, seven or more days in the last category, are a smaller subset of patients, yet they represent an enormous amount of the total time on mechanical ventilation in a given unit. So they're really super users and consume an enormous amount of resources.
1: That's, that's, uh, that's correct. The, the, the amount of time that they spend of, on mechanical ventilation, uh, length of stay in the ICU, if you compare uh on the penuela study in two thousand and eleven they were uh if you're simple winning is six days, difficult winning nine, but if your prolonged winning is eighteen days uh and longer and so uh these these are patients that occupy uh one of the resources in the i c u uh that uh needs to be addressed and so uh, in every single ICU, I would say length of mechanical ventilation is a key metric uh, about the interventions that we can do to shorten them. And uh, I actually think that that's a really meaningful uh, metric because it talks about several interventions that you can do to shorten mechanical ventilation that go from uh, uh, sedation practices, mobility, uh, uh, use and protocolization of, of uh, spontaneous brain trials and awakening trials and whatnot. So it's like, uh, uh, I think it's meaningful to, to try to shorten that amount of time uh, by interventions. So.
0: I wanted to ask you uh, the next uh, kind of category of terms relate to failure and uh, <clears throat> failure to wean, failed extubation. What do those terms mean to you and what do they mean in the literature?
1: Yeah, the uh, extubation failure has had had variable uh, definitions uh, through the literature, but I think that uh, more commonly now we use reintubation at 48 hours, so within 48 hours after extubating a a patient. And I think that that's uh, pretty operationally efficient for us to recognize those patients, uh, both uh, in studies and and in practice. Uh, The second one, which is prolonged mechanical ventilation, has a a long story uh, of how we came to those more than 21 days of mechanical ventilation to be the definition, but it all started in 1992 when they were doing one of these CPT codes and they had an advisory committee to create the, the code. But actually, It pans out very well with the the patients that have prolonged mechanical ventilation that uh, the literature describes. In general, all the series of patients that have had prolonged weaning uh, and that go on to have prolonged mechanical ventilation have more than 21 days on on mechanical
0: ventilation.
1: So, uh, I think that those uh, two are now pretty well uh, established and accepted.
0: I want to probe a little bit more in the uh, failed extubation. Concept because you mentioned that if somebody gets extubated and they get reintubated within 48 hours, uh, we would call it obviously a failed extubation. But uh, I do believe that there's a misconception of, among many clinicians that a reintubation rate of 0% is phenomenal. And I think that there's probably a sweet spot because if you have no reintubations, perhaps you're not uh, being as aggressive. Could you uh, comment on that, Eduardo?
1: absolutely I, I that's a a another metric that we we follow which is how how much how many patients should be failing extubation uh so that you know that you're being active enough uh to to get them off the ventilator because if you have a zero that means that you went really uh, uh conservative and and had patients on mechanical ventilation for a longer period of time and you didn't allow them to spontaneously breathe so the the number ranges uh in and as the literature goes forward is around five to ten percent i've seen as as high as 14 percent, but it's it's another metric that we keep an eye on uh to be sure that we're not using uh the gestalt so actually actually this is an important thing that came from literature was uh that uh As the protocol started to to get implemented in uh, for spontaneous green trial, what we knew is that uh, we usually underestimate the readiness of patients. So uh, we we may not extubate patients just by looking at them just from from their clinical characteristics, not test them, and uh, many of them, uh, up to 85% on some literature, were ready to be extubated. And it it always comes to us, Sergio, is the, the the events in which Patients get uh, self-extubated, and then uh, half of them do not get reintubated, right? So, so it tells you, well, this patient should have been extubated before he did it on his own, and talks about that readiness to, to be extubated and how to, uh, to be a, a little bit more aggressive rather than uh, conservative on, on how to get them off the, the mechanical ventilator.
0: And I think that those are very important points that are worth reemphasizing. And and point number one, like you said, is that I guess it's a systematic bias that we have, but we tend to underestimate the ability of our intubated patients to breathe spontaneously on their own. So we tend to keep them a little bit longer. And we'll talk about what are the mechanisms that we can implement to try to overcome that bias. And the other thing that you mentioned, Eduardo, which I think is worth repeating, is that uh, you follow metrics of quality, you need obviously more than one metric to make sure that you are doing the right thing. So if you follow duration of mechanical ventilation as you implement protocols and you you modify your the behavior of your team, you would like to see that that number go down. but you also don't want to make sure that you stay within a target with your reintubations because if you are zero, it means you're too conservative. If you are fifty percent, it means that perhaps you're a little bit too liberal, and that is it poses a safety threat to our patients. Absolutely. Is there any increased morbidity documented with patients who fail in extubation and need to be reintubated?
1: Yeah, and that and that's the, the challenge. That it's always um, and. and um, one of these thoughts that keeps crossing through your mind is well, if I keep them intubated, I expose them to a set of risks from sedation, immobility, uh, prolonged stay. I mean, all the things that imply we doing that. And on the other side is well, if I extubate this patient and he has to be reintubated, that's associated with increased morbidity and morbidity, uh, mortality and morbidity. And so that makes you um, think about this and try to uh, test the patient and be sure that you're uh, doing this the best way that you can uh, because it obviously it does have consequences when you when you fail uh, and the patients get reintubated.
0: Absolutely. I would like to uh, move on and talk more about evidence-based liberation in adult critical care patients from mechanical ventilation. And perhaps what we could do, Eduardo, is if we could start with a brief narrative of what your current practice is at the Cleveland Clinic, and then we can maybe dissect that and go a little bit uh, deeper into what are the individual components and what the literature says or doesn't say in terms of what's best practice. Absolutely.
1: I think that the – as I think about the practice that we have, I always start by the fact that what you want to do is that the you want to use a protocol that is run by our respiratory therapist. That's what we do. And the whole rationale for this, we're going to talk more about it, but it's essentially they are at the bedside. They do the assessment, and they go on to to move the protocol all the way to the moment that they say this patient is ready to be extubated. And so what do we do? We have a wing. Uh, winning screen or a screen for patients to go on to have a spontaneous brain trial, and this uh, uh, screen actually has a series of measures of gas exchange, uh, uh, improvement in oxygenation, uh, pH, and uh, hemodynamic stability. They're very basic, and uh, and we have actually narrowed the number of criteria that we were using there. After we saw that the, the most essential for us and the ones that were uh, being used the most, and then we did a sensitivity analysis and saw that the, the others were not changing uh, the patients that we should be choosing. So that made us use less uh, steps. After that, if the patient passes what we call the screen, those patients uh, go on to have a spontaneous breathing trial uh in which they uh undergo a pressure support trial of eight or five or pressure support over five of peep uh and then if they pass that after half an hour uh they have an extubation screen and during that extubation screen essentially is the amount of secretions do they have a coughlick, uh and their level of interaction and if they they are they pass the extubation screen then they get extubated and so that's the 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 series of steps we used to have an intermediate step uh in which we were measuring certain values like the rsbi and uh, minute ventilation and whatnot and we just took that off uh from the from the protocol we thought that just having the spontaneous breeding trial uh, passed or 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 failed was uh was a way to get more patients to have this spontaneous brain trial and extubated when they need it.
0: That's that's phenomenal. So let's dissect that a little bit more. And the first thing you mentioned was uh the weaning screening or weaning readiness assessment. So that is done uh, by protocol by the uh respiratory therapy colleague. And like you said, what you've learned over the, the years is that Less is better, right? Less is more. So you really focus on just, I, I presume, a, a couple of key components. Could you share some of those key components with us, Eduardo?
1: Absolutely. I, I, and this is some key word that I, that, that I heard from my one of my uh, peers, which is the more steps in a process, the higher the chance of error or failure you will have. And uh, I think about that a lot because we try to designate all these protocols and you keep putting stuff on and it just makes it harder for uh, them to get to the end of the process. So what we have right now, the patient has to be able to breathe uh, spontaneously, so to trigger the breath. His uh, FiO2 has to be less or equal to 40%. Uh, The pH has to be above 73 and the peep has to be less than eight and a respiratory rate less than uh thirty five and if they are on pressures, it has to be less than uh five micrograms per minute of leave of it. That's what we have uh, said If it's higher than that, then they have to interact with the clinician uh and and we decide if it's good or not to put the patient on on a spontaneous uh breathing trial but it's a it's a team decision they uh, at that at that moment.
0: And if they pass that, so they what it means really is that they are ready for a spontaneous breathing trial, so that's really what you're assessing for and uh a a lot of places uh, I think would still use an RSBI for that, but you really feel that you just moved to the SPT at that point
1: yes uh we we just uh, th- there were several reasons for that uh, some of them have to do with workflows and amount of work that the respiratory therapist has to do because if you want to do the appropriate RSVI, you would have to uh, disconnect him, put the right spirometer, measure the respiratory rate, and do the calculations Uh, based on the the fact that if you leave them on the ventilator or try to do it with the machine, you get different values. And so, the sensitivity and specificity were different. And uh, we thought that at the end of the the, the story, the, the thing that was most more most important for us was whether they passed or not the spontaneous breathing trial. Were they able to breathe spontaneously? And if they were, uh, unless there wasn't any contraindication to it, we would we would extubate these patients.
0: Excellent. So let's dive into the spontaneous breathing trial, the SPT a- itself, and I think that. Again, it's a very simple concept, but the devil's in the details, and there's obviously been discussion in the literature and there's been recommendations based on the available evidence for some aspects of the SBT. But the first question relates, and you did answer, but I just want you to maybe tell us a little bit more the the, the rationale behind it, is the use of pressure augmentation for the SBT versus what originally was described as a trait collar or a, a T-piece without any pressure augmentation.
1: Uh, yes, absolutely, and this has been a a real uh, interesting story because the, um, the the main issue is when you're gonna do a spontaneous breathing trial. Uh, what you're doing is you're testing testing the ability of the patient to breathe without assistance, and so the fact that they have a endotracheal tube increases the the resistive load that the patient respiratory muscles has to uh, be exposed to so the the question was well if you do a pressure support or or pressure augmented spontaneous breathing trial you are uh, uh, decreasing or, or compensating for the resistive load that the patient would have and uh if you do it without it then the patient is breathing with a even higher respiratory load than if the tube was uh, coming out and uh, so the the issue here is if you uh, augment the, the the pressure or the the effort for the patient then you may be hiding patients that will that will fail and uh, and, and I will comment a little bit more here because the the issue is and, and you may have seen this here in which you come to the bedside and they're doing a spontaneous breathing trial and they use a pressure augmentation. They're using 10 or 9 or 8 or 5. And and the question is, well, all of them have different support level for that resistive load. I and mean, in some of them you're even uh, supporting the elastic load, not only the resistive. So you may be hiding patients that are going to re- really fail and, and they would be at higher risk. Now, uh, I think that that was my, uh, our issue it's easier to do without a doubt a pressure support uh, trial because you don't have to disconnect the patient it 's easier for the r t s just to and you have the monitoring from the ventilator the patient stops breathing it kicks in so there's operational things that makes it easier and and it was not until uh recently that this uh trial was done, even though they compared extremes of the the process uh the t two uh trial versus the pressure support that uh there was actually more patients being extubated with the pressure support without an increase in the number of patients that got reintubated, uh, which was very interesting to us. And, and, and perhaps there's nuances in, in that study, but it just talked about that fear that, that we had for that group of patients. And, and, and we'll talk about some other subgroup of patients in which I think that uh, TPs may be a better option for them.
0: And it feels like uh, the last, uh, at least, uh, ATS ACCP recommendations talked about this, and I think for a lot of things that you articulated, and based on what we know, really recommend that we do it per support five to eight seems to be the the best approach at this moment. But you did mention that in some instances you might want to move to a T piece. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes,
1: I, I think that there there's uh, a couple of Practices that, that you may be thinking at at times, which is in some patients that have, uh, in which uh, the pressure may hide uh, failure from water shifts, uh, and so these are usually the the pressures that have, the the patients that have uh, volume overload or pulmonary edema or cardiac dysfunction, in which uh, the the breathing trial with uh, with some support uh, in the area put positive pressure may hide, and then when they get extubated, uh, then they are exposed to this situation. So uh, getting them off to a piece uh, to see if that uh, highlights or, or unmasks the, the presence of water and respiratory failure uh, may be a situation in which I would use a, a PPS trial. Uh, there is uh, very exciting new, new literature coming from France on, on this weaning-induced pulmonary edema, um, in which uh, essentially doing um, testing the, the patients for preload responsiveness uh, to try to unmask this group of patients. And, uh, and that may be another way, rather than using the TPs, uh for these patients and to protocolize uh, the care for them.
0: So, how would you? So, are you doing a a, a true volume responsive, a, not a bolus test, but more kind of a, a how, how do you how would do you implement that? Could you share that with that a little bit more?
1: Yes, uh, and and this is this is the group uh, from uh, Javier Monet and Taboul, Andres, uh, which essentially have done uh, in patients pretty invasive. Um, monitoring on patients that fail their spontaneous breathing trial. And then um, what they uh, have done is that actually, and there's different monitoring ways that they have done it, which are pretty pretty interesting. But one of them, which I think that probably is the most easy to implement, is to, in patients that fail their spontaneous uh, breathing trial, then to do a, a passive leg raise. And if the patients have a negative, uh, uh passive leg raise so the cardiac index doesn't change under those circumstances and you can do this non invasive echo or whatever uh those patients uh may need uh correlated with patients that had um, were that were that were failing due to uh uh weaning induced pulmonary edema and so the the numbers that they they're reporting are pretty high around uh from they range on the literature from 20 to 60% 67% and so on those patients that that do have uh these events of uh induced pulmonary edema uh the, perhaps the therapy for them is to uh to give them diuretic and to reduce the fluids and uh, there have done other things that i thought that were were pretty interesting is uh, to measure the plasma protein before and after which i think that it's operationally not non-feasible but they, it increases because of the water going into the lung as well as the hemoglobin and they also have done ultrasound uh before and after ca- counting the the b lines also w- with uh, pretty, uh relatively good uh performance so i think that this is an area that that needs further exploration but uh it has caught my my attention because you can think about it, how you would make it part of your protocol for those that have failed, so they have gone into the the, uh, the difficult wean uh, uh, situation, those patients may be uh, patients that we should be focusing on, on seeing if this is volume, cardiac dysfunction, uh, and whatnot.
0: Absolutely. And I think I was going to ask you, Eduardo, um, related to a, another population that I have observed a empirically or anecdotally, but I really have never seen any literature uh, that I think a TP sometimes might benefit. It's a very similar rationale. I've had a series of, I remember, recall, uh, young patients with intra thoracic uh, cancer, uh, lymphomas and others, that seem to respond, uh, their airway seems to respond very well to a little bit of positive pressure, but when they lose that positive pressure, they have airway collapse and have issues. And a lot of times those are patients that look great on pressure support, SPT, and then you extubate them and you get into trouble. Is that something that has been reported or that you have observed as well?
1: Uh, I have observed that. Actually, this week, uh, well, last week, we had a a similar patient with an intrathoracic mass and the the exact same thing occurred. The the clinician at the bedside said he passed the spontaneous breathing trial. He was extubated, failed. Reintubated, and so we did a TP trial just to to reassess that. And so I have not seen particularly that uh, that reported, but I can relate uh, very clearly with your um, with your point. Uh, also, the patients with excessive dynamic collapse, which you may be then under those circumstances uh, considering. Well, how how do I extubate him to to CPAP considering these the situations? Uh, so
0: really good point. Absolutely. The other question I had regarding the SBT is uh, the timing of the day and the frequency. Um, One of the problems that I have encountered in a community practice is that if the SBT is done by the night shift, a lot of times when we're rounding, nobody really knows exactly what happened, and it's a failed SBT, but you really don't know if they failed, should you do it again, is the patient now sedated? Is that something that you guys have wired down at at your practice?
1: Yes, and 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 uh, I think that there is a lot of room for improvement. Uh, the and I'll put it this way: we we are uh, once a day spontaneous breathing trial, unless the team comes to the conclusion that this patient needs another one. And sometimes it's because you come in the morning, they are doing the SAT and they're completely snowed. You say, you know, that, that didn't count. Wait, let's do it later on. Uh, the uh, I th- I think that. One of the, Some of the automated systems of mechanical ventilation uh, and some of those trials essentially extubated at any time that the machine said the patient passed the spontaneous brain trial and came out. Now, there's some literature saying that if you extubate them at night, uh, the mortality may be higher on those groups of patients. However, I think that this is all related to the site where you work and the, how you make the operations occur Uh, and the point is going towards uh, you have a patient that is on mechanical ventilation and as that patient is on mechanical ventilation he should be assessed the moment that he's ready to get off the the ventilator and the system, the hospital system and the ICU should be designed in a way that you can uh, ensure that you make that a safe event for that patient when you extubate him so That's in in our to-do things uh, for our practice, but uh, at this time, we're uh, uh, once a a day uh, or more if needed, but uh, guided by a clinician.
0: Excellent. And uh, I wanted to uh, ask you a little bit about uh, kind of the evidence behind protocols, and you talked about that a little bit. Obviously, we have protocols for sedation or daily assessment of sedation, awakening. We have protocols for weaning and liberation from mechanical ventilation for who's ready for SPT. And also now people are including protocols for early mobility and other interventions within the A to F bundles. Uh, Could you comment on where that stands and what should be the current practice based on the evidence? Well,
1: yeah, I think that the – there is no doubt in my mind that the way that we need to uh, manage is by protocols. There are several reasons to to ensure that you are creating protocols for management of these type of uh, evidence-based practice in which uh, you want to ensure that these interventions are being applied. And it has to do uh, with uh, uh, the environment and how we as humans uh, practice. Um, I think that we are in an era of information overload. You're at the bedside and you're getting messages from everywhere. in which uh, this should not be something that is dependent on the performance of the team at the bedside. It should be dependent on the performance of the protocol by a team member continuously at the bedside. Uh, I think that the other reason for for ensuring that we're doing protocols in our practice is that uh, it's very hard for us to detect associations with when the output is rare. So uh, as you're trying to improve the practice in your own ICU, uh you you need to be sure that what you're doing and getting data back from that and if it's left to the variability of other uh of other practitioners it really creates uh it's very difficult to know what you're doing uh, i think that there's also an issue which uh, uh is related to the variability on levels of experience and turnover in the in the population that are at the at the bedside and uh at least in our ICU we have residents and we have fellows and we have uh advanced practice providers with a lot of movement and you have to ensure that you create a protocol that that speaks to the environment where you are uh there's also and we talked a little bit about that the, the desire of inertia on on beliefs of certain, on on our providers and so uh i think that they at some point you have to make a commitment on certain actions to your icu that uh have so, some degree of evidence it's very it's always very easy to destroy articles and to 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 find flaws on what they did but you have to to choose something and apply it uh in order so uh as i as i read the, the from the first uh, uh Key article by uh, Wes on on the application of of this spontaneous brain trial by their respiratory therapists onwards. I think that the we just continue to see this through through time. If you leave it to our own device, you, you're not going to necessarily perform as good as you could if you establish a protocol. So that, that's that's where I, I would say that we stand right now. That not, and, and from there you can build up. What should be on that protocol right and 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 you can think about the bundles for the a b c d f uh you can think about uh how you you manage and wean patients uh from mechanical ventilation that have prolonged mechanical ventilation uh all of those I think that need to be protocolized uh and and that protocol needs to be adjusted to the practice where you are this is uh, it's not the same. My hospital, that your hospital, or the, or even within our hospital, the regional practices between us, and there's differences in how even the units are designed. So, yeah, and that's I
0: think that's, I a, that's a very important point Eduardo in terms of um, understanding that you have to be very um, flexible and understanding that evidence changes, and there's things that if they don't work, you can change. But on the other hand, you have to be regimented. Because if everybody's doing something different, there's no way to figure out what works and what doesn't work. And what the data has showed or the evidence supports is that for certain tasks where we have inherent biases, protocolized care makes a difference. Now, it probably makes a difference for the vast majority of patients, 80%, and maybe there's a small percent, 20%, like that 80-20 rule, where maybe you have to be a little bit more creative or you have to have a little bit more input from the clinician. But I think that ultimately what you're trying to do is really move the needle for the vast majority of patients. And like you said, the, the 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 large majority of patients who are mechanical ventilation will fall into that simple weaning. So getting to that SBT as soon as possible is probably the best way to move those patients forward. And then even with those who are difficult weaning or prolonged weaning, the protocol clearly will, will also help uh, uh, get the, off the ventilator quicker and recognizing what the problems are. Absolutely. I would like to uh, move on to some additional considerations related to this process. And uh, I wanted to ask you specifically about non-invasive ventilation after extubation. And I think, or or I understand, and I wanna hear your thoughts, that there's a big differentiation to make here between preventive use of non-invasive positive pressure ventilation after extubation and the use of this uh, non-invasive positive pressure ventilation as a rescue therapy trying to avoid a failed extubation. Could you comment on that, Eduardo, on how you use it and what the evidence says?
1: Yeah. Uh, in general terms, I think that we uh, all agree that in patients that are at high risk of, of failure after they pass a spontaneous breeding trial, the evidence points that using non-invasive on that group of patients decreases the rate of failure. Uh, or to extubation, so getting reintubated, which is a positive thing. And, and it's moving them from that transition of mechanical ventilation with a tube in their mouth and sedation to now no tube, and also positive pressure, but through a mask. And so I think under those circumstances, you, you can uh, choose which patients fall there, the hypercapnia patients, the patients that have underlying COPD, uh, the patients with heart failure, uh, the patient with neuromuscular disease. And I, I'll put them uh, right there. That's a, a classic group that, that have high risk of just not passing the spontaneous brain trial. And you really need to get them out of of, of this to non-invasive to improve their quality of life and whatever and whatnot. So I, I'll put those that, that group of patients there. There's a second uh, group that you mentioned, which is the, the patients that uh, get extubated and then hours later they start failing and you put them on, uh, non-invasive uh, mechanical ventilation, and then under those circumstances, the odds are actually against the patient. Uh, there may be some that will we, we'll do do fine, but in, in general, the practice increases the the morbidity and mortality of these patients. And the the, the big thought is because you delay the time to uh, intubate the, this group of patients. So, in our practice, we uh, use the the post uh, uh extubation non- non-invasive as a preemptive ap- approach for patients at high risk not for everybody and uh but not for for uh rescue which is the the one that failed now there may be a group of patients in which uh there are uh circumstances that make them appropriate to have non-invasive uh as a rescue option because of their preferences and uh and and the overall picture of their of their care or the situation that is putting them under that circumstances but in general the, the the movement is towards not using it
0: and and that's a very important distinction in terms of the literature and practice today supports the use of non-invasive positive pressure ventilation as part of your plan as a as part of your extubation and weaning plan. But the literature also, like you said, has shown that in those patients who we extubate and then two hours, three hours, a day later, they look like they're failing, uh, to try to use non-invasive at that point as a rescue likely will delay the intubation that they need and can be associated with increased morbidity and mortality. So I think it's an important distinction that our audience should to keep in mind.
1: And there's a, a good practice that we actually do is um, at the moment that we're going to extubate a patient, we do a huddle in which the uh, one of our physicians, the nurse, and the respiratory therapist just converge at the bedside and then discuss the the process for extubation. It's very simple. It takes a couple of minutes, but it's essentially does he have uh, difficult airway when we try to intubate him? And what what is gonna be the strategy to uh, extubate him? Is he going to high flow? Is he going to non-invasive? Is he gonna go to nasal cannula Uh, and whatnot? And that has um, uh, decreased the amount of events that are are due to lack of communication between the team when you're extubating somebody.
0: That's a great practice, uh, an extubation huddle. And like you said, it it probably takes just a little bit of time, but saves a lot of uh, potential miscommunication, and stress uh, in the patients as we, as we try to provide the safest care possible. You talked about the difficult airway, Eduardo, and I think this would be a good uh, transition into talking about post-extubation airway edema and strider and the role for a cuff leak uh, test and also steroids and in, in who? Yes. Um,
1: so, our practice, um, I, I would say the, the, the cuff leak test as a test has such a variable performance. And uh but that doesn't make it a uh, wrong. So th- there's two ways to, to do a cuff leak test. One is the probably the easiest for uh one our clinicians is to just put a stethoscope or and deflate the cough and then uh, listen and there, if there is a leak then everybody's happy. That means that there's space around the the endotracheal tube. Uh, and that means that when I take it out, the patient should be able to, to breathe. Uh, if it, there's none, uh, then that's a negative uh, test or, or a test that doesn't show any uh, escape of air. And that raises alarms and bells in our practice, which may be that there is edema around. Uh, there's other causes that um, we we take into account. One of them is the, 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 the size of the tube in relation to the patient. Um, uh, the other one that we uh, na- we now take much more care on is the presence of a bite block. And uh, bite blocks can uh, – in patients that are short, uh, they have the, – the takeoff of the pilot balloon can get crimped by the bite block. And then you have a negative cuff uh, leak test, which may uh, delay stubation or administration of steroids on that group of patients. There's other ways of doing the uh, the coughlick test in which uh, you can do uh, quantification of the amount of uh, the exhaled volume in relation to the uh, inhaled volume, and uh, the values if it's more than 12 or 20 percent, depending on what uh, uh, what you read, is a pos- is a is a test that is positive. Now uh, that takes uh, more protocolization and more steps, and so that's a little bit harder to, to implement. So what we do is just the auscultation at the bedside. And if that is negative, uh, so there's no no air leak, or uh, then under those situations, those patients um, receive steroids. Uh, and this is based on, uh, there's been a good amount of trials administering steroids, uh, different types of steroids on, on, on patients uh with a decrease on the post-extubation strider when you when you do that so the question of which type of steroid and uh and how many doses uh is still up in the air i think the the latest guidelines do recommend uh doing a, a leak test uh what we usually do is uh uh dose of that deca- we we get ent involved and they usually uh, those that we do is decadron, uh, and we give it every six hours uh, until the next day before they get extubated. Uh, and then on those patients, obviously they are on our radar uh, as a patient that we, uh, may require uh, uh, an a reintubation. So, so we are the extubation huddle on those patients includes bringing the the difficult airway card and whatnot when we're doing it.
0: And do you perform the cuff leak test on everybody, or is it on only patients who've been on the ventilator for a certain amount of time, or people you think are high risk?
1: Everybody. Uh, this is an easier step to protocolize. It's just to, to say everybody. it's a relative, it's simple to do, and so we do it on everybody.
0: Perfect. I want to talk a little bit about tracheostomy, recognizing that we could spend a whole hour on this, so I don't want to go too deep, uh, Eduardo but I just wanted to ask you about two, two uh, aspects of tracheostomy, just in general timing of tracheostomy. This is something obviously that can be debated for a long time, but my feeling is earlier than we used to when I was in training and just want to hear your thoughts. And it seems that it's reasonable in people who are uh, moving from the difficulty weaning to the prolonged weaning that we start talking about that with families. And the second question is just uh, some comments on once somebody has a trach, what's the best way to to wean them
1: yeah so in terms of timing
0: uh i think we 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 are uh around
1: the 14 day uh, mark we we have not moved towards early trach except in some situations uh in which the it's clinically indicated because of of airway issues that will definitely require a, a tracheostomy but I agree. As you go through the the literature, uh, we could argue this for probably all night uh, in which are the benefits and not the benefits and how the study was done. Uh, I do think that in in patients that have a tracheostomy, uh, especially in those that uh, have been having trouble with uh, sedation, in which you are using sedation because they are Uncomfortable and trashing with the the biting the tube and 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 doing uh, and they have already a difficult wean uh, or a prolonged wean in those patients it may make sense to to do a tracheostomy earlier but otherwise we uh, our number our magic number and our practice is around 14 days um, which correlates in in a sense with those patients that have prolonged wean uh, and that we have done what we need to as much as we can to get them off the of the device i do think that um uh, as as i read the literature about early trachs, uh one of my concerns is doing trachs in patients that don't need uh a, a tracheostomy and that they because they were, would have been extubated in a, in days after right and so um that would be the 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 main reason why early Tracheostomy, uh, unless a study or the evidence guides me uh, otherwise, is not something that we we are implementing right now. In terms of weaning on on tracheostomy, I think that the the the, the, the I enjoyed this study so much uh, by Jubran and the, uh, in which they grabbed the, the patients that arrived to a long-term acute care facility coming from an ICU. And the first screening that they did before enrolling them in the trial was putting them on a, a tray collar and letting them breathe. And they had some criteria for failure. And uh, they extubated a large amount of, of patients before uh, the trial was, the, the, before enrolling them on the trial, which just tells you about these um, practice that you may have in which you, you underestimate how much these patients could could breathe on their own, and so my my uh, uh, practice in general is that we should be uh, performing a extubate a a trache collar as soon as the, the tracheostomy is in place and allowing these patients to breathe spontaneously. And if they go through, that's the the way to go. Now after that the question is how much you should support them if they, if they didn't do well on that and, and how much support you should give to uh uh shift the load from the the respiratory muscles to the patient and uh uh if you if you follow what jubran uh, did in in that paper then these spontaneous breathing trials intermittently seem to have uh, a better outcome for th- this group of patients that, rather than uh, doing uh, gradual uh, reductions on pressure support.
0: And I think it speaks to the, the fact that once they get a trach, they still probably are going to be better off with a protocol and a daily trach collar SBT is probably the way to go there and really try to push them to to, to get off the ventilator at that point.
1: Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I think that the this is a this is an issue of giving them the chance to 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 prove that they can breathe spontaneously and improve everything that goes around. And actually, I think that a lot of these these patients that go into this failure to wean or prolonged mechanical ventilation uh, have, has to do with other items that we need to address uh, on how to. Um, improve their respiratory uh resistance and compliance how do we ha, what what is going on that is making them uh fail what, what what's going on with their heart what's their volume status uh what's their uh mental status their nutritional status how much rehab are they uh, are they getting um all of these things together i think that have much more impact than just the the fact of putting them on on a spontaneous brain trial actually i think that it's when it becomes much more essential, the holistic approach to the difficult-to-wean to, to wean patient is to say, okay, let's go in order over the the common causes, and and some of the, the research that is coming out may help us understand where to hit these patients uh, better.
0: Can you comment a little bit more, Eduardo, on the, those causes and just a general approach to that failure to wean? So, I, we talked a little bit about weaning-induced pulmonary edema, which is also used to be called cardiac causes of failed weaning, but just in general, what are other important causes that we should be considering in those patients who are falling in that prolonged weaning phase and are not really getting off the ventilator?
1: Yeah, I, I, one of the uh, other nice studies that come from the, the, the Chicago group with Laggy is, is how these patients actually uh, fail. So uh, and and doing very elegant studies about the the physiology of the respiratory system in patients that fail, uh, and uh, as you started seeing, they, they, these patients have an uh, an increase on elastance or decrease in compliance and an increase on the resistive load, and the, and the question is why is that happening in this group of patients? Um, uh, why because that's the load that the patient cannot has to deal with using their accessory muscles and their their diaphragm. And so uh, bronchodilation, uh, if the patient has underlying causes. But the more I think about this group of patients, uh, one of the the common features that we see is volume overload. The the amount of fluid that they have uh, just from being in the ICU, it's really hard to not find a patient coming out of the ICU that does not have edema. And if they have edema in the tissue, they have more water in the lung. I think that the, uh, this, this trial uh, in which they use BNP to guide uh, uh, the process and giving diuretics and, and restricting fluids for this group of patients uh, demonstrated a decrease in, in, in length of mechanical ventilation. And I think that it, that's the, the item where you're going is how to decrease the load on the respiratory system. The other one is, is delirium and anxiety and the, the amount of sedation that we give to, to these patients. And uh, it's clear to, to all of us now that the, the times have, have changed and we're moving towards a more uh, an environment of light sedation and interaction and keeping these patients as functional as possible. Uh, because that interaction and that uh, mental activity allows them to participate in... in uh, in many things and decreases the exposure to others uh, like sedatives and and uh, other medications that otherwise they would not need to to have and um uh, uh, along this uh and, and this uh actually in the in the patients that they studied from the the subgroup of patients that that gibran studied and how their strength move and and a key part for me that uh, of that study was that uh if you see the 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 muscle pressure on the patients, as they uh, the, the, muscle, the inspiratory muscle pressure, did not change that much while they were in the in the LTAC. They stayed about the same, but the, the 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 muscles of these patients, the peripheral muscles, the hand grip strength increased a lot. And when they left, it increased even more when they left that LTAC, which tells me uh, the importance of of rehabilitation and maintaining muscle strength uh and and conditioning on on them uh and i'll put a uh related to that and it goes with uh respiratory elastance and resistance and atelectasis and whatnot is the the, the ability of the patient to cough so now you have a patient that it's uh it has a tracheostomy so he has lost the glottic closure um that is weak on his peripheral muscles, so the 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 muscles of expiration are, are weaker, and he has the inability to take larger breaths. So, the ability to bring out secretions uh, is impaired. So uh, the 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 concept here is that the better you maintain the muscle strength throughout or in the overall situation, even in the, the throat, in the larynx, and the management of secretions, it has to have impact. Uh, just by 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 thought in the in the outcome of these patients that are uh, chronically ill and on a ventilator, so th- that that would be the the package where I would put it. And obviously, I cannot leave out nutrition and the electrolytes and under and overfeeding uh, patients, um, uh, as these are also associated with with outcomes. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, and I think a systematic approach to those few patients that re- remain in that difficult to wean category, like you mentioned, is really a holistic approach to these patients. And a lot of also what uh, impedes them uh, to wean is probably created by us upstream early on in their critical illness. So paying attention to that is also going to be very important in terms of long-term outcomes. The last uh, portion of our discussion regarding to the liberation slash weaning from mechanical ventilation uh, topic that I wanted to touch was related to weaning and COVID-19. Uh, obviously, it's impossible uh, not to talk about COVID-19 uh, uh, in the current situation, even though a lot of our colleagues might be seeing a significant downtrend in those patients. But one of the observations that a lot of clinicians have made is that these patients that end up in the ICU, for many reasons that we can, we can can we can discuss and many that we probably don't understand, have remained on the ventilator, for periods that seem to be longer than our other patients uh, without COVID-19 and similar ARDS or respiratory failure. Could you just maybe comment on what you think is different about COVID-19? Is it the disease? Is it how we behaved uh, because we were afraid and the things that we did? And what is the current evidence uh, available to to guide best practice in in the whole area that we're discussing of liberation and weaning?
1: Yes, I think that this is a, a manifestation of the challenges that we as clinicians with infection control, uh, and and there may be something basic with the disease. I I, I cannot n- necessarily comment if there if it's different to to others in the terms of of their the the, the mechanism of winning for them. But I, what I can say is that. The, based on my observations, there's a couple of things that are occurring in uh, you know, general. The first one was that at the beginning, we were sedating uh, these patients a fair amount. And actually, the patient ventilator interaction has been a real challenge uh, to manage. Uh, and in big parties, because we tried to, to wake them up, but when they wake up, the level of the synchrony and discordance with the ventilator is, is very high. And so larger doses of of sedation are used to try to control that, and it's not paralytics, which starts prolonging the the amount of time uh, on on the ventilator. The that, that's that's one of the parts. The second is, and uh, I would say at least in in our practice, one of the the main causes for us not to do a spontaneous awakening trial, and with this is protocolized, is a a physician uh, or a, 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 a practitioner uh, saying no, let's skip it on this patient. Uh, and the main cause that we have seen has been uh, has dealt with ventilator patient discordance. So either very high respiratory effort, or uh, uh, reverse trigger, or simply just very ch- or delirium. Oh my! They, and so the amount of to be higher and it may be related to our, our practices to uh, under these uh, circumstances we have been moving across the spectrum now to to this has become more of a routine case it's not the same that was occurring at the beginning of the of the pandem- pandemic and and the efforts have been when you ask me about what's the best available evidence I, I don't have a new um, uh, guide uh, for, for in particular for these patients, I do know, as, uh, and I was reviewing the literature on tracheostomy for, for these patients, that they are the, the time for them to get uh, trache is around 12 to 17, 23 days in even some series. Uh, but many of them get weaned off, and, and that has been our case uh in a, in in our both in our practice and in the, the long-term acute uh, care facility that we interact with uh, around 75% of the patients get a, get actually liberated from mechanical ventilation and uh, of those that that had prolonged mechanical ventilation that ended up in a long-term acute care facility and so uh, my, what our practice has been to try to apply what we have discussed all t- today. To the T, to try to be on top of the protocols, to try to do the SAT, the SBT, to uh, do uh, light sedation on on the patients as much as we can, and try to to contain with that, to use the fact light to uh, to ensure that we are diuresing these patients as much as as possible, so that they have the best chances to get off the, the ventilator. And, and and I will tell you, and, and is that many times when we Get uh, referrals uh, or patients that have been out in, in the the community. The only the main difference of care that we do is the, the application of these protocols on 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 the care and do the best basic ARDS mechanical ventilation care for them.
0: And that is an important lesson uh, that we learned that these patients may or may not have some very unique. Uh, characteristics due to the disease, but that the reality is that they fall within the category of other ARDS patients, they fall within the category of other mechanically ventilated patients, and we should do as much as we can to apply the protocols that we know have worked in large populations that are very heterogeneous for both of those categories. So I think that's a very important uh, message uh, for our for our audience. The other thing that you mentioned, which I think is worth um, commenting on Eduardo with the COVID-19 patients is the amount of delirium. And uh, it's interesting because one of the things that has uh, been a win maybe in terms of evidence base has been uh, finally, it seems, some stronger evidence towards the use of steroids. And I think we have been using more steroids in these COVID-19 ARDS patients, but we always think of steroids and complications as neuromuscular weakness and infections but we don't think of delirium, which is a huge probably side effect of using the steroids we're using. Any comments on that?
1: Yes, uh, I, I think you're right on. Uh, the, when we talk about uh, steroids, we, we, I think that the, the studies should focus on what actually the adverse uh, and the consequences of those adverse events. And, and I would say that yes, we're using more steroids now. We see delirium we see hyperglycemia we see leukocytosis uh and a weakness we will see i mean it's it's hard to uh, to uh, go after after that but what i would uh think is that every single one of those adverse uh reactions leads to more healthcare expenditures and and more interventions either more finger sticks more insulin um, more uh, blood cultures more tests to check for for infection and more uh, medications and more time on mechanical ventilation because of the delirium so uh the time will tell and but i think that the the uh, a focus should be on what are the consequences now that we we know that it works to improve uh the the survival on these patients now i think that the the evidence has shifted us uh that this is a, a clear Uh, pathway for the management of patients in the ICU that require mechanical ventilation or oxygen with COVID ARDS. Uh, But the the adverse events, we're going to have to become uh, more uh, attuned and um, how to deal with them to improve the outcomes of these
0: patients. Eduardo, I really enjoyed the conversation. I really appreciate all your expertise. Uh, As we wrap up, I would like to uh, do something that is uh, customary with uh, with our podcast and ask you a couple of questions unrelated to the topic. Would that be okay? Absolutely. The first question relates to books, and I would like to know if there's a book or books that have influenced you the most or a book that you have gifted most often to others.
1: Um I have read a fair uh, I'm I shift I from topic novels and whatnot, but probably the, the, the best answer would be what book have I gifted the most? Uh and it has been William Osler's biography by Michael Bliss. Uh I I love biographies and, and this, this one is one of those in which it brings the whole romantic and uh backstories of medicine. Uh that Osler influenced. Uh, He he was an an amazing uh, uh, physician and had a lot of personality and it brings a lot of stories. So um, that's something that I I give often to our fellows or residents um, just because of what what it brings to the flavor of medicine.
0: And uh, if I am correct, I might be wrong. We can fact check this, but my understanding is that um Dr. William Osler actually died uh of the 1918 flu. Is that something that oh, that okay. you that, that I read somewhere and I think that he he actually had a, got sick and got so he was also part of a big pandemic and 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 had that 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 complication. Oh,
1: that's uh, I, I, I know that he died from pneumonia and uh, with an effusion and they were placing a chest tube, uh, I I believe, but uh, I didn't know it was the flu. So that makes it even more consequential to this time.
0: Absolutely. The second question relates to what do you believe to be true in medicine or in life that most other people don't believe or at least behave like they don't believe?
1: Yeah. So uh, I I, I think the future doctor is going to be very different than uh, us. And uh, that technology will be an essential uh, part of their work, and that the biggest threat uh, will be too much information, too easily available, embedded, opinionated information, and uh, which was a threat uh, and continues to be a threat. I mean, COVID just unmasked it as I had never seen it. And so the, the future doctor is going to have to uh, deal with this and uh, and create an environment to be able to to uh, find the truth amongst uh, all the information. What a challenge.
0: Absolutely. I think this infodemic that we've seen with the pandemic uh, has had not only tremendous consequences on the public, but I think even furthermore has had very uh, harmful effects on clinicians and uh, on their behavior Uh, and i think we've moved to an era where we are overloaded with information and uh in the past access to information was power now it's probably the ability to understand which information we should be paying attention to that will be power and and like you said it'd be a different skill set that people will need to have in the next decades ahead of us the last The last question, Eduardo, as a departing thought is, what would you want every intensivist who's listening to this podcast to know it could be a quote, a fact, or just a thought?
1: I I think that the, what I would like everybody to know is that the, we can do better with mechanical ventilation. Mechanical ventilation is uh growing, developing, and uh, to be able to do what we want, we need to y- ensure that we understand what the machine does. Uh, and I think that that's, uh, th- that has evolved and we need to learn to learn uh, new stuff on mechanical ventilation. Uh, in that in, in that statement, I will also put that words matter. Uh, and, and when I say words matter, uh it, it has to do with how we refer a lot to to patients and so when you use the the words like uh that's his baseline or that's where he lives or uh i don't know that's a soft blood pressure that's a new one uh, all of those alter the behavior of the team around the patient and create views and so as we think towards the, the the future, I think that we need to be uh, use the same words that mean something, that uh, so that we don't bias the rest of the the, the team when we're taking care of uh, patients. So, that th- those are my two departing thoughts.
0: And I think this would be a perfect uh, place to stop. I really appreciate uh, your time, your expertise and look forward to seeing you in person soon again, but also to having you back on the podcast as a guest. Thank you very much.
1: Sergio, this was a pleasure to talk to you and to hear that you're doing well. And I, indeed, I, I look forward to seeing you again.
0: Best to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Critical Matters, a sound critical care podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Critical Matters on Apple or Google podcasts and share with your network. Sound Critical Care is transforming the way critical care is provided in hospitals across the country. To learn more, visit www.soundphysicians.com.